Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. So, now what we are going to do is kind of continue. Remember last week I did a little overview of the Beatitudes, and I just can't leave this sermon. I am seeing more than ever how the Beatitudes are connected to what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really beginning with the Beatitudes and ends in chapter 7 of Matthew as he speaks and he shares a number of things. And they are really connected at the hip. The Beatitudes was laying a foundation of what this kingdom looks like, this civilization that is established by God and what a citizen of that kingdom looks like. And so this morning I want to talk to you about a number of things. Frozen wedding cake, moving out of L.A., the Glendale Police Department, miles, feet, and inches, and ultrasounds. Okay, Jesus has described again what a follower of the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he has a lot more to say about it. But as he's transitioning these things and trying to get us to understand this new way of thinking, he's unveiling a closer relationship with the Father. The Sermon on the Mount shows us how to live truer to God truer to others and truer to ourselves. It is trying to get to something that is genuine. And last week, remember, we ended with you are salt and you are light. Verses 13 and 16. And in verse 13, Jesus made an odd remark about the salt losing its saltiness, right? Or becoming tasteless. The King James says losing its savor. And the Greek word that is used there for tasteless or saltless is the word foolish, which I think is interesting, right? Because that's the same word that he really ends this sermon on. He says in Matthew 7, 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. That word foolish is the same word that's used for tasteless or saltless. And in scripture, especially the Old Testament, the idea of foolish is whatever goes against wisdom. If you know something is good, if you know something's right, if something makes sense and you go against it, it's foolish. I think we would have the same definition today. And and it's not so much, though, a matter of ignorance or being simple-minded. It's a purposeful departure from 
what is right and what is good and what is healthy. That's foolish. So in what way can salt be foolish? The year after Corrine and I were married, our first anniversary, we had taken the top of our wedding cake and put it in the freezer, right? Because it's a tradition. I don't know who started that tradition. I mean, just get a new fresh piece of cake, for goodness sake, right? Or I heard a new tradition is to take your vows and you put them in a box with a bottle of wine and two wine glasses. And after a year, you bring the vows out and you read them together and have a glass of wine together. And if you need the bottle of wine before the year comes up, you can go ahead and, you know, help yourself there too. But the whole idea was, you know, here is a memory. We're going to bring out this wedding cake. It was just a small circular top and we were going to eat it because it was reminding us a year ago we got married. And so we got the top of the cake and we got a knife and we put the knife into the cake and this horrendous squeak came out. It was this, and it was like, oh my gosh, what is that? Something happens when you freeze wedding cakes. What is going on here? I wasn't real crazy about the idea to begin with. And now this noise is coming out that's kind of our cakes possessed or something like that. Well, it turns out that the top of our cake was actually a piece of styrofoam <laughs> that they had frosted. And for one year, we kept a frosted piece of styrofoam in our freezer. So in what way can salt be foolish? In the same way that the piece of a cake is actually a piece of styrofoam. It is not what it's supposed to be. It's something else. And let's face it, all salt is, is salt. If it's not salt, it's nothing. You know, it's kind of like if a tree loses its treeness. What is it? Well, it's either a tree or it's not. And so the whole idea here is Jesus is personifying salt to remind us in this analogy that it's impossible for salt not to be salty. If it's not salty then it's nothing because salt is what defines salt. And as far as we know, we are the only ones in God's creation that can fail to be what we were created to be, that we can fail to live up to our humanity. And that would be foolish. That would be being something that we're really not. And so if a follower of Christ does not shine the light of God, is not the salt of the earth, then they are failing to be who they were created to be. And then the image of Christ becomes non-existent in us. Now, this isn't about going to heaven or going to hell. That's not the question here. They are being foolish. They are ceasing to be who they should be. And so Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17, there it is, to 20. And he says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I tell you, unless heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for the remainder of this chapter, Jesus is going to illustrate these beatitudes. He is going to try and help bring clarity to what we've just read, especially this idea, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that had to be a daunting statement to people who did not read, and here are the Pharisees who do read and know the law and supposedly keep the law, and to be told that unless you're better than them or surpass them, then you're not going to be a part of this kingdom. And so the disciples, the crowd, needs to understand, what do you mean by this? And all these things that you've just said are so contrary to what we've been thinking. The meek will inherit the earth. I I thought we needed to regain power to present ourselves again as a, a force in this earth. Blessed are those who mourn. Why would that be a blessing? Or the poor in spirit or those who are persecuted? None of these things make sense to them. Do we have to take all the things we've heard and throw them out the window. And what he does is try to clarify this. But first in these verses, what he's trying to do is transition from these beatitudes to some examples that he's going to give later. When we were thinking of moving up into the Napa Valley area, we were offered a church in St. Helena. St. Helena is just gorgeous. It is just this beautiful, small little place, but it is just super expensive. We could not live there. We'd have to live somewhere else. And so we were kind of going up there every, you know, month, a few times a month. I was teaching at a small church that they were asking me to pastor and seeing if we could maybe find a place to live or if that's what we wanted to do. And there was one weekend where I was stranded there. I didn't have my car. I was at the mercy of the other people. And I was just there in St. Helena at their house. It was actually not in St. Helena. It was just over the hill. And for a whole day, I sat in this house. It was beautiful. And I just couldn't do anything. I was stuck there and I started going stir crazy. And we went back into town later that evening and everything was just so slow. You know what I mean? Have you guys ever moved out of LA, right? I was talking with your son Mario the other day and I said, so does it seem, you know, crazy over here? Cause he's up in Washington, right? Oregon. Okay. Washington, Oregon. He's out of state, right? He's out of and so he came back down. I goes, it seemed crazy. And he goes, man, it takes me 20 minutes just to get to the freeway. He goes, I can get on my bike, go to the grocery store, get what I need and come back in that time. And I know what he's saying, because when I would spend a weekend there in St. Helena, I felt like it was entering a different time zone. Everything was just so 
slow. And some of you are thinking, that sounds so good. But if you're not used to that, it is a shock to your system. In fact, one of the times where Kareen and my daughter Lauren, her friend Alyssa and I went there, we, we spent the weekend there in St. Helena, the Napa area, and then we decided on our way home we were going to stop in San Francisco and just go get something to eat and come back down. When I got into San Francisco, just the, the motion of the city, I felt relief. I felt like this is normal. This is people moving at a normal pace. They have places to go, sort of. Not really. They're just going to go, you know, shopping or whatever. But it just seemed normal to me. All right. And, and it's this moving and this changing that's taking place, trying to get them to understand where they need to be. And so as Jesus starts speaking through this Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, he spoke with his own authority. He didn't quote rabbis. He didn't quote different authors. He didn't quote different resources. Even when he quoted the Old Testament scriptures, he didn't do it in a way to support what he was saying. He would say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He would use it in a way to bring clarity to what it meant, putting himself in parallel to what the passages of Scripture were actually saying. And so at the end of this sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, their teachers would say, well, Rabbi says this, and we know from this passage that we believe this and interpret it this way. And here comes Jesus and he says, I tell you, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. You've heard it said, this, but this is what it means. He puts his words above what they've heard and on parallel with scripture to the point where the Pharisees in talking with them in John chapter five, he says, you study the scriptures. These are the people that he just said that their righteousness needs to surpass. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus wanted to clarify that he was not tossing out the scripture. But this upside down world of the Beatitudes that he's presenting it caused them to wonder, what are we supposed to believe? And he explained that he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And instead of doing away with the law, he came to make it do what it was supposed to do. And this is really important because if we call ourselves Christians following Christ, then this is the foundation that we build on. Because this is what he was pointing to. Now, even the poets and prophets would speak about some of these things that Jesus would talk about. You see, the, the Pharisees, what they did is they held on to the law and they would want to interpret it accurately. And so doing, sometimes they would miss the point. And so in Psalm 51... Verses 16, it says, you delight, 
You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, right? But wait a second. The book of Leviticus was all about offerings, right? It was all about how to do things, when to do things, to do things correctly. And here comes the psalmist saying, that's not what you want. Verse 17, he says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise this. That sounds a lot like poor in the spirit. You see, the poets were interpreting the law and what God really cared about. Where they were focused so much on these rituals, they were missing the point that the rituals were trying to take them to. The rituals don't matter. It's the heart that matters. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11 says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fat and animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, why would he say that after prescribing in a law all these ways of sacrifice? Because he's trying to get to the point. He's trying to get to the spirit of the matter. You guys may not know this, but I was almost a police officer. That's right. You better drive safely. I applied for the Glendale Police Department. A friend of mine worked there. I was financially in a bad place, have four kids, have a home, trying to provide. And this opportunity, a friend of mine worked on the police department. And he said he had a good voice in for the people. And so I went and I did the written thing. I got into that. And then I did uh, the physical thing. I passed that. I know, I know. You're impressed. And then I had to go and do a oral interview with the police uh, they had someone from the city as well as some of the police officers there. And so I'm sitting there and they're asking me questions. And some of the questions they ask are meant to trip you up, right? They're trying to find out what are you going to do? And so they asked me, if you see your mom speeding, are you going to pull your mom over and give her a ticket? I said, no way. She's the only babysitter we got. <laughs> And they did the same thing. They, they laughed, right? They, they laughed. You see, because the point of the law isn't to give your mom a ticket. There's a spirit of law. It's to bring safety, right? If your mom's doing 40 and a 35, you're not going to give your mom a ticket. If you are, you got other issues you got to work out with your mom, okay? Because someone here said yes. I heard that. Uh, they're looking for someone who's going to find the spirit of the law the intention of what's going on, right? It's not trying someone who's hard-pressed to just do this. You need to be able to reason things out in a way that's going to be helpful. And what Jesus is bringing about here and what the poets and the prophets were trying to point out was a deeper level of the law, that God has no pleasure in sacrifices. Well, then why are we doing them? What Jesus is saying is that there is more to God's revelation than what is found in the surface of the rule book. That there's something that he's trying to get to that you have to really look deeper to understand. Now, the Torah, right, the law, the five books, there's much more than law there. There is the story of Abraham and the history of the nation. There, there's a lot going on besides just law there. 
But Jesus includes the law and the prophets. And he's doing it because he's trying to get them to see that God was speaking all along, but they're missing it. They have to change how they're thinking. How many of you know how many meters are in a mile? One, two, maybe, I don't know, three. Do you know that the United States is one of three countries that does not use the metric system, right? Miles, feet, inches. Every other country in the world except for Liberia, this other one that I don't even know, it's by Burma, it's Myanmar, and the United States are the only ones that use this old traditional imperial system. Why? Because it's hard to change. It's hard to change. When I see something and it says, you know, centimeters, I'm like, oh, what? You know, I'm like scratching my head and I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do I figure, hey, Siri, you know, how, how many, you know, we get so locked into something that we resist the ability to change. Israel had grown up with a tradition, a history that had become very much like we are in our imperial measuring system. We just don't, it's like a foreign language to us. And because we are so committed to it, we are now committed to not changing, even though the rest of the world is doing something different and it would help in our interaction with the rest of the world. And of course, people who are in businesses that are interacting have to be engaged with that and have to know it. Otherwise, it's going to affect their business. But at one time, Israel was a great nation. Under David and Solomon, under David, he had gotten the northern and the southern kingdom together and had built themselves into a military strength. Solomon was so well known for his wisdom that they would come, queens would come to inquire about how he ran things, how he did things. But Yahweh's people had turned away from God to other gods. And what that means is not just a way of believing and thinking, but a way of living. Even Solomon started using his own people as slaves to build the temple of God. Think of Egypt, think of where they were, think of what's going on. You see, they started to leave God and pursue other gods, and those other gods might not actually be an idol or some other things, but it's a thing that is away from the God that you belong to, like using your own people for slaves to build your palace and gods, of course. And so they fall away. The message of the prophets before and during the exile, before Babylonian captivity, before Israel was just sat, scattered, that's the word, scattered throughout the nations, was God would bring them back to their own land. 
God would give them a descendant of David to rule them justly, and God would cause Israel to be again a light to the nations. That was the promises that they held on to. And so returning from exile, when they started to come back together, a new breed of spirituality started to develop. And Ezra was a very influential scribe and priest. And what he started to do and his followers, they figured out that the future of Israel's survival and restoration depended on two things. One, a total devotion to following every detail of the law. It contained all the rules they needed to please God. And so Ezra, in a very real sense, was the beginning of the sect of Pharisees and their way of thinking at that time. The future of Israel, right? A radical separation also was needed from the pagan nations and their people. And these commitments defined their religious life. But 400 years after putting these things into practice, they had not reaffirmed or returned to their former glory. They were still in this state. And the Pharisees maintained the tradition of Ezra, but failed to understand something about their version of keeping the law. See, it was not what God intended. They assumed their whole duty was to the letter of the law. And so they became obsessed with the details of the rules and their observances. They, they missed the point that they were to live for God and not for the law. And so Jesus would say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, it's a new way of seeing things to where they were. No, the Sabbath is everything. No, the Sabbath was there for man. And so Jesus is changing how they're interpreting these things. And they began working out specific and detailed applications to every little thing in the law to try and do things right. But then they also found out that they could have loopholes for the things they wanted, like divorce. And so in Matthew chapter 19, they come up to Jesus to test him because divorce became something that they could do for their convenience, the men And they can find a way, a loophole in the law so that they can continue living how they wanted. Jesus referred to God's intent prior to the law and said that it was deeper than the law. And in doing so, he showed them that divorce was not a commandment, but actually a concession. And Israel had missed God's intention behind the law. And this explained their current condition. It was all about the letter of the law. Keep things exactly as you see and understand as much, interpret as much as you can, detail into it, and that's how we'll live and that's how we will return to glory. And it wasn't working and it wasn't God's intent from the beginning. Jeremiah even said in Jeremiah 7, 22 and 23, for when I brought your ancestors, ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command that it may go well with you. God was trying to bring them into a deeper sense of relationship and they kept wanting to go and make it a legal term. 
You guys ever read legal information? It's like a different language. The party of the first part will then be party. It's like, where's the party, right? I mean, I, 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 don't, I only get so far and then I'm gone. There was more to God's revelation than the surface of the law. So what did Jesus mean when he talked about fulfilling the law and the prophets? Jesus was fulfillment in a number of prophecies in the way it's very similar to how he was fulfilling the law. The exact meaning and intent of the law was not found in its commands, but became clear in their fulfillment. A lot of times we don't understand what God is saying until we see it play out. You ever have something that way? Maybe, you know, you find out that something's going on inside your body. You hear, you know, I feel like I've got a pain here and the doctor goes and he checks on it. But you don't really know what's going on. And so they get an ultrasound and they put that little gel stuff on you and they rub that and they go, oh, okay, here, here's what the problem is. You know, you've got your appendix is going to burst and we got to get in there and operate. Good to know. Right? It's, you get to understand something a little bit more deeply when you get to the interior of what's going on. And so the fulfillment of the law is adherence to its deeper level, its intention. And so in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Right? It's influences exerted in the person's inner life. It's written on the heart. Everyone knows not only God's law, they know God. They're in relationship. And not only that, they're allowing God to know them. Now, of course, God already knows them, but it's when they recognize that knowledge. The fulfillment is when the deeper level of the law reaches the deeper level of who we are. And it's not just something that's in the surface. Fulfillment of the law results in a a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, righteousness is relational. It's a justice in living relationship. And then Jesus goes on to express. He gives these little illustrations to express the surpassing of this righteousness and what it looks like. And we start to see the Beatitudes show up in these little uh, explanations that he gives. And I'm going to go quickly through them because I don't want to take up too much time. But really, he's just pushing us deeper into this understanding. Right? In verses 21 to 26, he says, you shall not commit murder. You've heard it said, but I tell you, if you hate your brother without a cause, you're committing murder in your heart. It's very much like the hungering and thirsting beatitude after justice, after what is right, right? The more common threat to justice living or righteousness is anger, not murder, right? I'm guessing more of us 
get angry than murder people. At least I'm hoping so, right? It's, I mean, so this idea of anger, gosh, it's not relevant in our culture. The idea of anger, the deeper level of law, speaks to our total attitude towards a person. What a person is accomplished what is accomplished when we insult someone, when we demean someone, when we put someone down? How is it better? You see, we say, oh, you shall, I don't commit murder. Yeah, but you're angry at your brother. And that's dealing with the heart of the issue. He talks about, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's move on. Um, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> remember, purity was wholeheartedness. Blessed are the pure in heart. It was giving ourselves totally to something, wholeheartedly to something. It's about recognizing that our thoughts can pollute the water of our soul. So we say, if your eyes offend you, cast them out. Why? What is he talking about? He's talking about deal with the heart of the matter. The same thing is true with divorce. The pure in heart. The commandment was greatly abused. Right? And so he says if someone, you know, divorces his wife for any reason, then he's committing adultery and telling them that makes her a victim of adultery. Why? Because you're making an excuse for yourself, and it's deeper than that. Now, Christianity has even gone further away. Okay, it can only be for adultery. That's not what he's saying. See, we just go to another letter of the law. We'll just make it another. Okay, now these are the rules. And these are, no, what's the intent? It's protection. It's development, right? If a woman is being abused, she does not have to stay in that relationship. No way. Jesus isn't saying, sorry, it's not, you know, he's not committing adultery. You got to stay married to him. That's not the intent, right? What is the heart of the matter? He was dealing with the Pharisees and they're abusing their position to get what they wanted, making vows, right? Again, you've heard it said to people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord what you've made. And he says, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be genuine. Be who you're supposed to be. Verse 38 deals with being merciful beatitude, right? You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Children of your father in heaven. That sounds so much like verse 10, be sons of God, right? Those who are persecuted. And these things are pushing to the heart of who we are because I can love my friends and I can love people in my family that I get along with. But as soon as you cross that line and become my enemy, I will not talk to you. I will avoid you. I will treat you like an outcast. And Jesus says, you're in violation of the law. What law? There's no law that says I can't do these things. My law. And he's pushing us to something deeper. There is something about all this that is both frightening and appealing. 
It, it's frightening because the more I, I sit in the scrutiny of who I really am, the more I see things that I don't really like. But the appealing thing is it is actually pulling me to be someone who is genuine, someone who doesn't just say one thing and does another thing, someone who doesn't act one way and say things another way, someone who actually is who they're supposed to be. And I find that appealing because I find that a desire that I want. I'm not there. I don't do that all the time. And every now and then I get this understanding of where I really am. And it's like, oh, God. I need your mercy and I find myself right back into blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I find myself, God, this is what the law was supposed to do all along was help me to see that I need you. I need your help. I want to be genuine. I want to be completely yours, to love like you love, to care like you care, to have justice like you have justice. And any time I find myself outside of that, I have to put myself back into the right plane in focus. And if you go through these beatitudes and you don't get smacked somewhere, you're not being genuine. If it doesn't smack you upside the head someplace and you say, whoa, that one's a little tough. Or these six illustrations. Love your enemies? Whoa, Whoa, next. If we don't hear these things and get confronted with ourselves, then we're just staying on the surface and we're content. And our righteousness is like the Pharisees. It hurts. It's tender. It's the ultrasound seeing what's inside. Some final thoughts. When looking at the deeper things in yourself, examining your motives, your emotions, don't become too obsessive or too self-condemning. Neither one are going to help you. Shame does not get you to a place of genuine relationship. Forgiveness will. Grace will. Also, quiet prayer can be very helpful in helping you to deal with with what's happening. Quiet prayer means you don't talk. You're quiet. And you sit still and allow God to speak to you. Don't turn on the TV. Don't turn on the radio. Just allow that drive or that time to be a place where God speaks to you. God will walk you through the process. He'll reveal the deeper level of his will. And in closing, I want to close with this psalm and make it a prayer. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to be a part of your kingdom and my righteousness can't be superficial. I don't want to play games. I don't want to be a part of religion. I want to be a part of your work that is changing the world. I want to love like you love, even though it costs what it costs you. I want to be a person who really belongs to you. Oh God, I need your help. Let's pray. Father, these words have challenged me so much and it, it was a lot to try and get through 
And it's a lot for me to process, Lord, in my own life. And so many times, just even this week, I'd have to stop and just pause and be silent because you were speaking to me. You were telling me where I need to go. You were revealing to me what's inside. And it isn't always pretty, God. But Lord, I would rather be uncomfortable when I'm sick so that it pushes me to get better. I I would rather have the discomfort of being in a position that is superficial than to settle for something less. Help me to push through the discomfort to become healthy, to get to the deeper levels of what you are wanting to accomplish in my heart, in our lives, in your church. And we are here available to you, Lord, asking that you would speak to us. We do so in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. And as Randy sings this song, I want you to think about some of the things maybe that stood out to you, that God spoke to you. Maybe it was a verse that was read or a statement that was said that struck you and you know that this is an area of your life that you need to listen. You need to change. You need to dig deeper in and allow the Lord access to that place. May God's law be written on your heart. May you not be foolish, but be who you were intended to be. You are the salt of this earth, the light of this world. God bless you. Have a great week. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.